All right. Have you ever guys have you seen a set of blueprints before? For those for those of you who are unfamiliar, uh, blueprints are the drawing plans to be used in construction, and it lays out every specification of a construct of a construction project. You know, back in the day when they started using blueprints, it was printed on a blue piece of paper, almost like a negative, so the the lines uh, were white, standing in contrast with that blue piece of paper. And on those blueprints, every feature, every aspect, every change of elevation, locations of wires, everything that you need to know about that construction project could be found on the blueprint. And so it's the job of the designers and the architects and the engineers to take all those specs and put it down on this piece of paper. And they do that so the builders, the ones who are actually doing the project, know how to make that happen, make it come to life. So every detail has been thought out for the contractors all the way down to the smallest of things. And then it's the inspector's job to come on site and make sure that the plans that were approved back in the planning phase actually match the actual construction on the site. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at blueprints, but not blueprints on a blue piece of paper or for a project around your house or a city development, but we're going to be looking at the blueprints for prayer. Blueprints for prayer. We're going to go back to the scriptures and look at the design of how God intended us to have a conversation with him and what we can learn from those blueprints. And so if you haven't done so already, I invite you to open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 is where we are. It's we're going to be spending the rest of our morning. And our task, again, is to study these blueprints in chapter 6. And so if this is your first time with us this morning, or perhaps you just need a little refresher, for the last several months, we've been working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. And this week, we're here in chapter 6, and we've, we've been in the section of, chapter, of verse 1 through 17. In verses 1 through 17, Jesus is talking specifically about religious hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, and he, he, he addresses it head on. And he's concerned with religious hypocrisy, right? And he undeniably corrects this hypocrisy. He corrects hypocrisy in giving. He corrects hypocrisy in prayer. And in the coming weeks, he'll correct hypocrisy in fasting, And remember, we've already learned that we don't want to be giving or praying with anyone else in mind. There should only be one audience of prayer. And we shouldn't be thinking about what others are thinking of us when we do do those things. And Jesus here tells us how not to pray. And he starts to show us exactly how to pray. So let's read our text, uh, the whole section this morning. It'll be chapter 6, verse 9 through 15. And we're going to be concentrating on verses 11 through 15 uh, this morning. So follow along as I read from Matthew chapter 6, 9 through 15. This is the words of the Lord, our Savior Jesus. Pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Verse 14, if you, for if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But... 
If you do not forgive others, then your father will not forgive your transgressions. So last week, as you know, we started our study of these blueprints of what we can call the disciples prayer. It's commonly known as the Lord's prayer, but more appropriately, this is the disciples prayer. Because Jesus really wouldn't necessarily have prayed this prayer exactly. Nor uh, it w- was it intended to be something that we repeat over and over. He just uh, addressed that in the earlier verses to not have this meaningless repetition in your prayers. And so my hope that this, this morning that it, each of you, through our study of verses 9 through 15, will be equipped with the plans, the blueprints, not only for biblical prayer, but also powerful prayer. And I hope that you learn how to think correctly when it comes to prayer. And so if you look at Matthew chapter 6, you'll notice what Jesus says in verse 9. He says, pray then like this. Chris, last week, he helped us to understand our relation and our audience of prayer. Chris showed us the importance of the words, heavenly father. And how profound it is that in no other place of scripture do we find such a consolidated and intense representation about Jesus inviting us to call his father, our father. And this is great. It holds great significance in what it really means to finally have a heavenly, perfect, listening father. You know, while some of us have never known for a day of our life what it is to have a father, Jesus describes this as he introduces prayer, that we have a heavenly father. We learned about God's glory and God's kingdom and God's will. And now at last we come to where we usually spend a lot of our time in prayer and that's concerning our own needs. And so this is going to be the second part of this blueprint for prayer. And Jesus is going to teach us, if you look at your notes, these are your, your three points this morning. Jesus is going to teach us how to pray for our food, pray for forgiveness, and then pray for freedom. Food, forgiveness, and freedom. And that will be found in verses 11 through 15. So let's look at verse 11 and see that Jesus teaches us how to pray for our food. Look again at verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. Now before we go into explaining what that text is, you know, we have to grasp the significance of this. And my first job when I entered the, the uh, workforce was at Bob's Big Boy, the original Bob's Big Boy. And I think I, I pulled down $5.25 an hour. And it was awesome because I got, you know, half off of meals and while I was there. And every Friday night, we could go out and look at all the classic cars. And it was phenomenal for a, for a teenage boy first job. And, and you know, 525, it's all relative, right? And for some of you sitting here, your, your starting wage was $2 an hour. And for some of the, the younger people now, you wouldn't even think of, it, of getting a job if it wasn't uh, more than $17 an hour. And it's interesting to me that even though the, the wages have gone up, the, the debt has increased as well. Uh, the average American is, is consumed uh, with debt. And so, you know, the, the question is, are we really making more, right? The lifelong question when we think about that is, what, is, is it everything that we need or is it what we want? We've been tricked into seeing things that we need. You know, these quotes over need. Oh, mom and dad, I just need that new phone. You know, I need a new car. I need those new shoes. Yeah, and this idea 
uh, has changed over the years because we've changed the meaning of the word need versus want. We've taken that word want and replaced it with need. And so what we really mean when we say we need something is that we want something. And if we're honest, we would say that I want those certain things. And we've justified those wants seemingly needs, we've justified them to the max, right? If I don't have this thing, whatever this thing is, I'll not feel good about myself. You know, God wants me to feel good about myself, so I need that thing. And we've deceived ourselves. But what's happening here in our text this morning, we get to this category of the disciples' prayer where Jesus, he's going to get our attention and he reframes this entire discussion with an honest calibration of what are our needs. What are your needs? What are my needs? And how do those compare to what we're actually praying for? A need could be defined as this, as something you cannot live without. So a need is something you cannot live without. Not just something you don't want to live without, but what you actually cannot live without. And this is where Paul, the apostle, helps us in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 8, when he says, if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. And if we're honest with ourselves, we're well beyond that, that category. In, you know, we're well beyond that range, right? We have uh, covering and food, and so we ought to be content. And so this is what Jesus teaches us here, right? We, we start with our needs. First, Jesus teaches us in verse 11 about praying for our food, Look back at verse 11. He says, give us this day our daily bread. Now to be clear, Jesus is not talking about, or he is talking more than just about food, right? He's, more, he's talking more than just about bread. Jesus is not worried about your uh, carbohydrate or caloric intake right now. That's not his concern. But his concern instead is directing us where we need to be thinking about our necessities. Right? That is food, clothing, shelter. And this is not a chance for you to come to God in prayer with your wish list for God of all the th- items that you've ever wanted in this life. You know, here in Santa Clarita... There are people, because of the influence of churches or, uh, um, or, or perhaps your upbringing or others' upbringing or, or a TV pastor, perhaps, who might be a little bit more charismatic when it comes to prayer. And so because churches and pastors, they distort and misrepresent this passage, these needs that you might be praying for, or more like a new Mercedes-Benz or a multi-million dollar house. I've, for example, I've had a friend say to me, he's, he's taken Psalm 37, verse 4, right? Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. As if to say that it's some transactional agreement with God, right? You're praying to him, give a, give, a, give a big shout out to God or the man upstairs, and I go to church, and I live virtuously, and then that he'll give me whatever I ask of him. That's not true. In fact, I've heard one preacher say that you should be praying for Cadillacs because God wants to give you Cadillacs because you're delighting in him. This type of low-grade to high-grade health and wealth gospel is common, sadly. Not just in Santa Clarita or L.A., but it's all over Latin America and all over Africa. And in fact, it's probably the biggest stain that our country has exported to the world, this health and wealth gospel. Prosperity gospel. 
And so for us here at Church of the Canyons today, we need to learn how to come to this disciples' prayer and see how Jesus frames our needs. So we're talking to the Lord for our daily bread. And so do you see the meekness in that statement? Do you see the humility in that statement? If you're blessed and if you're satisfied with God, we're not praying for that new Mercedes Benz or the new iPhone because God has somehow obligated himself to give us that. No, we're to be asking for bread, not dessert. This is asking the Lord to adjust our expectations. And notice in verse 11, look at the timing of it, right? Give us this day our daily bread. The intention here is that we simply ask what we need on a day-to-day basis. Now, I don't mean it's wrong to, that you pray for things in the future, right? And, and it's okay to pray for things in the future, right? Let's say if you're single and you, your desire is to be married, I'll pray along with you that you find a godly spouse, spouse and your desire would be fulfilled in that, right? Jesus isn't saying that you can't pray for anything in the future, but what he, what he is saying is are you relying on the Lord for today? Are we trusting God with the future? Are we praying for the means that we have today and seeing day by day the evidence of his grace in providing for us and loving us? The opposite of that, right? The opposite of trusting God for your future, if we're not careful, will result in anxiety and worry and fear for the future. And many of us here are plagued by that. Anxiety and fear and depression. In fact, quite uh, honestly, a number of us are tempted to worry about tomorrow without even giving today uh, another thought and bringing today's needs before the Lord. All right, who will be our next pastor? Who will lead us? What is happening to this church? What is going to happen to this church? This is a temptation for most of us here at this church. In fact, Jesus knows that this is a big temptation for you because later in this chapter, verses 25 through 34, he says four different times, do not worry, do not worry, do not worry, do not worry. He says tomorrow has enough trouble on its own. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Well, there it is, right? In our text, Jesus says, listen to me, pray for your needs now. Be thankful for your, for for what you have now. And Jesus is wanting to, for us to realize that we are not called to have selfish desires for the future, but rather to have a modest and reasonable and biblical expectation and then corresponding thankfulness and then contentment for today. If only we as Christians would be more content with what God has given us today and took obvious apparent inventory of what he's given to us, I trust that we would be way less worried about what tomorrow holds. Our second point after Jesus teaches us how to pray for our food, he tells us to pray for forgiveness. Let's look at verse 12 and then the commentary that he gives on that verse in verses 14 and 15. Look at verse 12. He says, and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Drop down to verse 14. For if you forgive others their transgressions, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your father will not forgive your transgressions. So the problem here 
in verse 12 is our debts. This word debt is one of five words that the New Testament uses when it refers to sin. There are different ways in which the writers use this term to address the topic. But Matthew's trying to be very clear of what this problem is. The idea here, it should bring to mind pictures of financial woe. Financial woe. Right earlier, I referenced about over, uh, the uh, average American's overspending habits and how the average American is just buried in debt. Some of us now are in debt. And if you're in financial debt, the reality is that there's always something looming over you, right? The Proverbs say that you are now slave to the lender. Here in our text this morning, it's something much more significant than financial debt. It's not debt to man, but it's debt to God. This debt that comes from sin. It's moral and spiritual debt because of the sin that you and I have knowingly, voluntarily, willingly, and repeatedly committed against God. Our conscience has convicted us, and the word of God has commanded us how to act, and we've disobeyed it. Others have modeled it for us, and we've turned away from it. We understand, then, that our relationship is not as it should be with God. We have a debt. So Jesus wants us to recognize this. In fact, you just draw your attention back to Matthew chapter 5 in verse 3. It says, right, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, right? This idea here is in chapter 5 is poverty. And it's the same imagery that he draws to mind here in chapter 6 verse 12. The idea is debt and poverty. So you and I, in our natural, normal condition, left to ourselves, are not in good shape. No matter how intelligent you are, no matter how educated you are, no matter how good-looking you are, no matter how well-connected you are, church, we are not in a good place naturally before the Lord. See, we have an issue that we need to address. Sin is what separates all of mankind. And it's man's greatest enemy and our greatest problem here on this earth. It dominates our mind and controls our heart. The sin, this debt that we're in. Now for those of us who have trusted in Christ, have been forgiven their sins, and are safe from the consequences of that sin, which is ultimately death in hell. And so I want to clarify two things here. Uh, scriptures, they, they make two distinctions when we talk about our debt. First off, there's some of you who are not in Christ. I can't assume it's a gathering of people this big that there isn't one of you who do not know Christ. And you could just honestly just be before the Lord and say, yeah, you know, I don't, like, I don't mind being around religious people. I don't mind being at church. I'm here this morning. I don't mind the Bible. I think Jesus is a cool guy. You know, but I'm, I'm pretty good. But I've never surrendered my life to Christ and trusted his work on the cross for me. I've never repented of my sins and asked him uh, to cover me with his righteousness because of the crucifixion and resurrection. You know, I've never had um, my confidence in him alone to forgive me. And if that sounds like you, friend, this is where you need to begin. 
The debt must be paid. It must be paid. The sin debt needs to be dealt with. And if you're not choosing for Jesus to pay that debt for you, then you're electing to pay it yourself. And the reality is, again, that this debt must be paid. You know, we live in a time where protesters scream down the street, what do we want? Justice. When do we want it? Now. You know who cares the most about justice? God does. Do you know what his standard of justice is? It's his own holiness. And so he will judge man's acts by what standard? It's by Christ's own righteousness, Matthew 17 says. And so the question becomes, do you want the punishment? Do you want that debt to be paid by Jesus as a substitute? Or do you want to pay it? And if it's by yourself, if you choose to elect to pay that debt yourself, then you're electing for all eternity to pay that debt by being punished in hell. This speaks to the great offense our sin is to a holy God, that it would require an eternal punishment. And so the second distinction we make in scripture concerning our debt is on the other hand, those of you who have put your faith in Christ, Coming back to this text, let me distinguish another thing for you. Right, in earlier, in verse 9, it says, uh, you pray then in this way, our Father in heaven. So Jesus isn't out here extending this familial relationship to you and then pulling it back. Right, he's speaking about even people of God, even God's own children struggle with sin. Right, if you belong to Christ, it doesn't mean that sin just sort of poof and is out of your life forever. No, you know this. I know this. So what we're seeing here in this context is that we need to recognize uh, the dependence we have on the Lord to deal with that sin. And it's because of the cross that we are confident that we have an audience before God because of our faith in Christ alone that we can confess our sins to him and be confident that he will forgive us. But the requirement of that then is, is confession, right? We confess our sins. That, that's what we see in the text here. And this is the idea of forgiving our debts. You know, 1 John 1, 8, and you probably have it memorized. It says, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. So John is warning believers, but he continues on in verse 9. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's the gospel. There's the good news repeated over and over again. So we must stop there because the text, I mean, we can't stop there because the text doesn't stop there, right? What does it say? As we also have forgiven our debtors. The idea is simple here. If we, have, if we have forgiven, then we will be forgiven. And if we have not forgiven, we will not be forgiven. So what's going on here? To some of you, it might sound like we're reading about salvation and forgiveness by works. So is that really what the text says? Well, let's remember in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. 5 verse 7 says, Blessed are the merciful... For they shall receive mercy. 
So we are to be kind and gracious, never holding grudges or accounts of other people's wrongs against us. And a, well, a well-known text that might be good for you to write down and, and to go back to is Ephesians 4.32, right? Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. So when we forgive others, we are free from God's discipline. This is the life of a Christian. When we are in sin, there will be a chastening of God, Hebrews 12 says to us. And so what I want you to recognize from this text is that forgiveness is a major theme of a believer's life. So if you were to give your life to Christ today, forgiveness would be the major theme of your life. Becoming Christians isn't just a past tense thing, something that happens in the, in the past. It's not having been forgiven, but it's the practice of restoring your relationship with God on a regular uh, process and repentance. And then that demonstrates how you, it, it, it demonstrates itself by how you interact with others in relation with other people. All right, whether it's a roommate or a parent or a sibling, a coworker, or even a person in traffic. Right? So how do you interact with other people? As Christians who desperately need to be forgiven of the sin that lingers in our hearts, we must also be forgiving. Listen to what the Puritan Thomas Watson said on this matter. A man can just as well go to hell for not forgiving as not believing. Charles Spurgeon said, unless you have forgiven others, you read your own death warrant. It's a big deal. So when you repeat the Lord's prayer, here's the key. It's not the, the act of forgiving, um, forgiving other people that secures your, your salvation, right? It's not just that, that where you gain salvation, but rather it's evidence that the grace of God is at work within you. Because you have been forgiven by God. And that you are now by nature desiring only and deliberately seeking to forgive other people. You might say, you know, Matt, that sounds really good if you have a good life. Right? But there's some of you who would probably raise your hand and say, isn't there some small print? Is this all encompassing? Do I have to forgive everyone? Is this comprehensive? Isn't there an asterisk associated with this phrase? Because it's insensitive and it's, it's not even possible. All right, what about the wrongs that have been done to me? Tragic wrongs, physical wrongs, sexual wrongs. What about the legal consequences of those people? You're telling me I have to forgive them? Oftentimes, those offenses are swept under the rug because of passages like this on forgiveness. But we remember Romans chapter 13, God has given government to carry out the sword for those who do evil. And there certainly is a place and a time that they ought to be held responsible for that. Right? And it doesn't even necessarily mean that uh, if the, those offenses that came to you didn't rise to that level, uh, there's still relational consequences, right? And the reality being that some of those relationships might be ending. There might be discord for decades. 
But here's the question when we come to the end of it. Regardless of whether the person that's wronged you ends up reaping any consequences, how is your heart? Are you inclined to forgive? In a later conversation that Jesus has with Peter, he asked Jesus, how many times should I forgive? Seven times? Peter throws that in, tries to impress Jesus because because of his eagerness to forgive, right? Seven times, that's a lot of times. What does Jesus say? Not seven times, but 70 times seven times. Jesus isn't limiting uh, forgiveness to 490 times here, right? He's saying, as many times as it's done to you, you keep on forgiving. Now, again, let me be clear. This is not somehow diminishing the difficulty of coming to that point of forgiveness. This is, but this is a, a, you know, somehow recognizing that there are things that we've experienced that can be very emotionally charged and very difficult to process through. But this is why, this is the, the grace that God gives us of having a church family around us. Right? The church is made up of brothers and sisters in Christ who can take care of us, can walk with us and, and uh, through these difficulties of finding forgiveness and offering forgiveness to those who have offended us. And it may be hard for you to receive this instruction to forgive others. But however you've been offended, you have to remember that you have sinned against God 10,000 times worse than anyone has ever sinned against you. And guess what? God has forgiven you. God has forgiven you. When we are not forgiving, we are clenched so deeply down on bitterness, uh, so down on unforgiveness that we let the actions of others determine how we act today. Jesus is saying, do not do that, but forgive others. Forgive others as God has forgiven you. So our third and final point this morning, we not only pray for food, and our forgiveness, but Jesus shows us how to pray for freedom. Freedom. Look at verse 13. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. And don't get it twisted on what type of freedom that we're talking about here. All right, when it comes to freedom, when you hear that word, especially over the last two years, it's, it's almost like a polarizing topic. But the freedom that Jesus is talking about here in Matthew chapter 6 is more significant than any political freedom or freedom of speech. This freedom deals with the issue of sin. Look at verse 13 again. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. See, the followers of Christ recognize their spiritual weakness and therefore pray for deliverance from temptation. They pray for the withdrawing or the deliverance from evil. And if you were to go back and look at Matthew chapter 4, you look at the temptation of Christ in the wilderness. You see how Jesus withstood this temptation and he did it with scripture. And he did it so that we, and he did it. He withstood temptation in a way that we could never do. He did it perfectly. Right? He is the, he was, he is perfect in practice. And now through faith, We get his perfection credited to our account. So then, for the kingdom citizen, 
right? That's what we've been talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. This is what kingdom citizens look like then. For the kingdom citizen, there's also a desire then to practice resisting temptation ourselves. And part of that uh, practice is to be honest and to admit the problem that stands before us. What I'm tempted by and then look to God for help in that temptation. What's interesting here is the idea of asking God in prayer, lead us not into temptation. Right, again, like the earlier point I made, this might cause the uninitiated among us to feel like God is now responsible for my sin. Right? And then if he is, if he can lead me out of, or not lead me into temptation, it means that maybe he's responsible for my failures, right? Well, let's reverse engineer this, right? If I got into a, my predicament because God led me here, then it's his fault and not mine. That's not actually what Jesus says here. Let's be crystal clear. God does not tempt man in the sense that God is the cause of our sinful desires or is somehow he is trying to cause us to fall, right? Listen to James chapter 1 verse 13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So what is happening here? What's happening here is that we must recognize the source of our power to deal with the problem. We have to see the power, like the source of the power to deal with the problem of temptation and sin. The source of power being God and the problem being sinful temptation. Now, interestingly enough, Paul writes about the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, right? There's no temptation that's overtaking you that is not common to man, meaning that it's normal. And here's the key. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That you may be able to endure it. So what do we see in our passage this morning? Here, it's the character of God. It's the plan of God that he is faithful. He is providing an exit door in that temptation. There was an exit door on that last temptation that you went through. And so the blueprint for our prayer life is to ask God, show me that exit door in my next temptation. Now, sometimes it's finding the exit door as well as praying that God, let me pass the entrance door, keep walking by it. You know, maybe it's not being in that place alone, in a dark place with your girlfriend or boyfriend. Maybe it's not hanging out with people that you know who are going to get drunk and you're going to follow suit. Maybe it's turning off your cell phone, getting off social media because you're tempted with, relentlessly with insecurity or anxiety or anger because your body doesn't look like someone else's body. Sometimes that temptation door is right in front of you. And so we need to recognize it and not stay in that temptation longer, just on the off chance that we'll be able to make it through on our own. No, it's time to get out of the temptation now. And we can't do that on our own. We need the strength of God to do that. 
know, sometimes I'm talking with people who are fighting in these temptations and losing the fight against the temptation. And ask yourself, how much of prayer has been in your fight against temptation? How big of a role does prayer play in your life when you resist temptation? Because if Jesus tells us to do it, we better be doing it. How much in those moments when you're ready to look at porn, are you like, God, help me. I need a way out. I need to go out into my living room where everyone else is, where I can be seen. Jesus has already taught us in Matthew chapter 5 to take extreme measures to deal with sin, right? He says, gouge out your eye, cut off your hand. This is serious. Maybe it's time to take the door off your hinges so you don't have a place to hide. Maybe it's time for a flip phone. Fill in whatever temptation. You know, I've, I've only said a few temptations, but fill in. You know where you struggle. You know where you're tempted. And then plead with God, I need your help now. Jesus wants us to take our sins seriously because he does. And so look back at our text and see what it says here and deliver us from evil. So is this evil that he talks about here, is it Satan or is it the world around us? If you look back at chapter five, verse 39, it says, but I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. There's more, this is the same idea here. It's more uh, referring to just not the evil one, but the evil doers. Those who, the, the general idea of evil that surrounds us. God, deliver us from evil generally. See, the world is hostile, right? The world is hostile to God. And it's hostile to God's people. And so if you continue to live for God today, I just want to assure you of the words of Jesus that you will continue to be hated by the world. And those who are going to be faithful followers of Christ are going to have consequences. And I don't say this to, to scare you, but I'm hoping that my words this morning will sober you because the day is coming where you have to choose this day whom you will serve. And there's an understanding here in this prayer that we want to be aware of and we want to be delivered from this temptation. And Jesus tells us to be in the world, but not of the world, right? The significance here is to recognize how much prayer relates to living in the world, not just for our food and forgiveness, but actually in regard to how much you sin in this life, directly tied to how much you pray and what are the things you are praying for. And what an invitation Jesus gives us. James chapter 4 teaches us to submit yourselves, therefore, to God and resist the devil and he will flee from you. So there we have it. An expose, a blueprint, a foundational basis by which our prayer should be built upon and be growing in. And so the question is, is that how we are thinking? Is that how we are living I realize, you know, preaching on prayer, uh, you know, for, for the Christian, it, it's, it comes back to the same point. Prayer and evangelism are the two things that 
Christians can always do, be doing better, right? We can always pray more or pray longer, or we can always tell uh, you know, one more person about the gospel. And it's not some guilt trip when we talk about prayer, about your security or identity in Christ. However, I'm trying to slow down the tape just enough that we might stop and stare at these verses to reorient how we enter into conversation with God. Because that's just what prayer is, right? It's a conversation with God. And so Jesus invites us here to enter into the conversation with God the Father himself. God the Father, the first member of the Trinity. And later in Romans chapter 8, we see that the Spirit, uh, the Son of God, or in Hebrews, I'm sorry, Christ, the second member of uh, the Trinity, helps us with our prayers, right? He stands as an advocate before the Father. And then later in Romans chapter 8, the Spirit of God, the third member of the Trinity, is helping us with groanings too deep for words in our prayers. And so the whole Trinity is involved in your prayer if you are a believer. And Jesus teaching, is teaching us here the dimensions and the details of this prayer. And if you want your prayer life to go, then you, you're at, maybe you're asking, where do I start? Where do I start in growing my prayer life? You know, some of you may, may have heard just an acrostic guide uh, to help you with prayer. It's called ACTS, right? A-C-T-S. The A is adoration. Start there. Praise God. Give him praise. Worship him. Praise God in your prayers. The C is confession. Acknowledging your sin and thinking through the areas of your life where you have sin still there. The things that you need to address with God in the last day of the week or this past month. The T, thanksgiving. How can you be thankful? Look around you before you make any requests of God. What have you been already asking God for yesterday or last week or last month? What have you thanked him for? And finally, the S is supplication. What do you want to ask God for? Those are your requests. A-C-T-S. Let me ask you, what does your prayer life look like? How often do you pray? How long do you pray? What do you pray for? Jesus isn't writing a prescription here, right? Merely to just check boxes, but he's giving us categories to consider. He's inviting us into this conversation with him. So therefore, Christians, whether they're on their own or together in a group, Christians enjoy prayer. Therefore, we have, as a church, you know, we've enjoyed many times of prayer together. You know, we've prayed together after services. Elder meetings are filled with prayer. And it's why there's a prayer list inside your bulletin now. Every person who's a member of our church, we pray through. COC, prayer should be normal for us. So is it normal for you? If not, just start somewhere. Just start this afternoon. Pray with your eyes open. Say, Matt, pray with your eyes open? Isn't that weird? It's okay. Right? Why do we pray with our eyes open? Because you can see everything around us to be thankful for. The camera. Thank you, God, that we have a camera. Thank you that we have Wi-Fi to be able to stream this service all across the world. Thank you for this building, for the people sitting here and not at the beach. Thank you that we have brothers and sisters around us. Thank you that the worship team skillfully leads us in song. Thank you, God, 
Thank you for being faithful in the absence of a senior pastor. Thank you, God, that you've already picked that man. It's our job to find him. Thank you, God, for not abandoning Church of the Canyons. So start this afternoon with prayer. Continue then tomorrow and then grow in your conversation skills and love for God through this blueprint of prayer that Jesus lays out in Matthew chapter 6, 9 through 15. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you with adoration, praising you for who you are. God, very God, high and lifted up, seated upon his throne, creator God, sustainer God, redeemer God. May we lift you up and praise you in our hearts. Father, as we confess those times where we have been overwhelmed with anxiety or fear, depression, where we are worried about tomorrow before we even prayed about today, I pray that you would forgive us. And just thinking again about the things we ought to be thankful for. Thank you for this church. Thank you for this church that you loved so much that you would die for her. And Father, there's so many things that we would ask for. I would pray that uh, we would align our desires with you as we delight in you. So God, we give you everything here at Church of the Canyons. Thank you for the blueprint of prayer.